Good morning and welcome to First Fridays. Uh, my name is Dr. Bruce Joel. I'm a pediatrician and one of the chief clinical officers here at uh, Londo Christian Health Center on Chicago's west side. And uh, the vision for First Fridays is really to be a monthly gathering for Christian healthcare providers to uh, connect and uh, encourage and equip one another, uh, to spur one another on um, in uh, this venture of living out the gospel through uh, healthcare among the poor. And uh, we are really privileged uh, this morning to have uh, Dr. Greg Lee, uh, who is well known to most of us here at Lawndale. Greg and his wife, uh, Jeanette, uh, live in the community and raise their families uh, right here in Lawndale. Uh, Greg is uh, an assistant professor of theology and senior fellow at the Wheaton Center for Early Christian Studies. He got his uh, PhD uh, in theological studies from Duke. Uh, an MDiv from Trinity Divinity School here um, in Deerfield, Illinois, and a BA in philosophy from Princeton University. So, um, Dr. Greg Lee, um, fun fact here from the Wheaton website, rode in high school and college crew and still can be seen working out on the, uh, the rowing machine or the dreaded erg as he calls it down here in the fitness center and has been known to play basketball uh, on the court down here and has a, a pretty good, I think he blocked uh, my shot one time on the basketball court down there. Well, probably more than one time. Um, but uh, anyway, we're really privileged to have uh, Dr. Greg Lee here with us this morning. He wrote an article um, called Mercy and Mass Incarceration, Augustinian Reflections on the New Jim Crow. And uh, as we're thinking about this gathering to continue to educate and equip and encourage us, we need to continue to learn more about our community and the things that are affecting our community so that we can understand that and thereby do our mission better to show and share the love of Christ through that. So um, I want to welcome Greg up um, as, he, as he talks about what he learned, um, his story um, going through um, looking into uh, mass incarceration and, and justice and how that's affecting for sharing the only good moment that I've had in basketball. I know Pastor James would have a lot more negative stories <laughs> because he has a lot more data on how unskilled I am. Catherine Tugden does as well. Um, since mid-2014, there are a few issues that have more dominated our national conversation about race than the relation between police and minority communities, and especially poor minority communities. The controversy has been going on for a while, but it really exploded into public consciousness in uh, 2014 um, in Ferguson, Missouri, when a white police officer, Darren Wilson, killed an unarmed black man named Michael Brown, and Ferguson exploded in riots. And then what you see in the subsequent months is that that incident is followed by a series of other incidents um, where unarmed African Americans were killed at the hands of white police officers, um, a lot of which received national attention through social media um, and other venues. This is also when you see the rise of movements like Black Lives Matter, which has been both vilified as a terrorist organization and praised as a new version of the civil rights movement. The popular response to these incidents um, is not just a knee-jerk reaction to videos that you see on YouTube. For years before 2014, scholars on both sides of the political spectrum, conservative and liberal, um, have been stressing the racial inequities in criminal justice 
Um, and especially Michelle Alexander, the author of a book called The New Jim Crow, um, has argued that mass incarceration is a racialized system of social control with very striking similarities to the earlier caste system. I'm just gonna share a few statistics that lend credibility to her claim. Um, the number of people incarcerated in the United States has increased sevenfold since 1980. So this is not like a 300 year old problem. It's something that only really arose in the last 30 years where you go from 300,000 incarcerated in jails and prisons to 2 million in, in 30 years. The US locks up a far higher percentage of citizens in almost every developed country in the world. Germany, the, the number is 93 over 100,000 uh, citizens. 93 citizens out of 100,000 are incarcerated at a given time. The number for the US is not 93, it's 750, right? It's six to 10 times higher than what you find in other industrialized nations. The strongest um, percentage of this increase in, um, in, in, in incarceration has to do with drug convictions which have disproportionately involved African-Americans, even though whites and blacks use drugs at the same rate. It's, uh, there's been a number of studies on this, and the rate of black and um, white drug use is actually exactly the same. Despite this, in many states, um, black men are admitted to prison on drug charges at 10 to 50 times the rate of white men. And in areas like Washington, D.C., three of four African-American men can expect to serve time in prison at some point in their life. Now, I didn't know any of this before. Um, I learned all this when I moved to this community. So my wife and I moved to Chicago about seven years ago as I was taking my current position at Wheaton College and she was taking a job at the Lawndale Christian Legal Center. And the requirement for the job um, at LCLC was that we live in the neighborhood and that we attend Lawndale Christian Community Church. Prior to this, I had no experience in African-American communities. I'd never lived in the inner city. I'd never really explored issues of race or justice um, in much depth. But we sensed a strong uh, calling to join this community, to at least give um, this job a shot. I mean, we needed a job anyway, so you know, came with a home and a church, so we figured that took care of all of our needs. And so we found ourselves uh, moving here um, shortly after our wedding, um, which was yeah, about six years ago. Moving this community showed us a couple of different things. The first is that we saw just how profoundly incarceration affects this community and how differently community members here viewed the police than we had as relatively upwardly mobile suburbanites. There's a stark difference of how we view the police from the way that community members here view the police. And we, you know, we realized how many people here had been incarcerated and how many families that affected. The second is that we came to see how inappropriate of a tool incarceration and criminal justice are for addressing the causes and consequences of crime in this community. I'll just give you some statistics. So Lawndale, um, this might be familiar to you, it's uh, a community area of 3.2 total square miles. It's about 35,000 people, at least according to the 2010 census. So that might be different now, but that's the most recent numbers. It does have the highest, uh, amongst the highest rates of violent crime in Chicago, about 10 times the national murder average. But the level of incarceration is even maybe more stunning. Um, according to widely cited estimates concerning this particular community, concerning just North Lawndale, 70% of men between 18 and 45 years of age have a criminal record. 57% of all adults are currently involved with the criminal justice system in one way or another. So they may not be incarcerated, but they're, you know, they have charges against them, something along these lines. Um, because it so disproportionately affects men, because incarceration primarily concerns men, there are actually only 84 men for every women in this neighborhood, for every 100 women in this neighborhood 
between the ages of 20 to 39, which are childbearing age, right? So that's a, a significant factor in why you see so many single mother families, because the men are incarcerated. So the incarceration here is, uh, rate here is very, very high. It really affects this community a lot statistically. But the question for us was, who exactly are these people who are getting locked up, right? So in the 1980s, during the crack epidemic, it was very common for politicians to describe drug dealers as hardened, remorseless menaces to society. Hillary Clinton herself, as she was um, you know, promoting a, a, a violence a crime prevention act, um, popularized the term urban predator to describe black drug offenders. And that's actually one of the reasons why a lot of black activists were not super enthusiastic about her candidacy in 2016. When my wife was working at the Londio Christian Legal Center, she saw just how many of the court-involved youth had come from extraordinarily traumatic circumstances. You know, youth who didn't know their fathers, whose mothers were drug addicts, whose families were living off food stamps, who had been evicted from their homes, who had seen their friends shot, killed, hauled off to prison. At Kingdom Men, um, you know, Lawndale Community Church's morning Bible study, I saw how many men in our community had come through those experiences, out of prison, had gone through Hope House and turned their lives around so that they are now upstanding, productive members of society, many of whom had now dedicated themselves to serving other people who had gone through the same circumstances that they had. And it came to seem very inappropriate for us to respond to criminal activity in this community without first taking into account the extraordinary challenges that many court-involved youth have faced from such an early age, or to take seriously the possibility that those who are presently being banished from society might actually experience reconciliation and restoration and shouldn't just be cast off the margins. My vocation is to be a professor of theology, which means that I have no actual life skills. I cannot <laughs> diagnose a disease like many of you can. I can't represent anyone in court like my wife can. I can't really do anything except read books and think about contemporary issues in light of the Bible and tradition and things like that. So that is what I will do. Um, that is the only thing I can do. I can't even do anything around my house really. It just, yeah, fairly unskilled in a lot of ways. My research focuses on Augustine. He was a fifth century um, North African bishop who's arguably um, the most influential theologian in the history of Western Christianity. And a lot of my um, research focuses on sort of connecting how does Augustine view the world and how should we think about the world today, um, which I think is an illuminating exercise because sort of stepping out of your context, seeing the way that a really great thinker in a different time thought about social issues helps you to have a different framework and perspective on how to think about social issues today. So I'm gonna begin with Augustine and go backwards a little bit to a little bit of a, um, an apparently unrelated place, which is his polemic against Roman religion. That was one of the dominant issues of his, today, of his day. It was paganism in its literal sense. Um, the gods that you read about in stories, Jupiter, Mars, Juno, these were not just stories for Augustine. These were literal statues and shrines and places where people were burning incense and making sacrifices and so forth. And he considered this an absolute abomination. And he dedicated his greatest work, City of God, to eviscerating Roman religion and explaining how it came into being and why it was such a destructive um, uh, social system. So three points that he makes about Roman religion that I think um, have implications for how we think about mass incarceration, even though they're not obviously related. The first is that Roman religion is an intellectual absurdity that ultimately derives from people's lust for earthly goods. 
So the basic system of the gods was designed to secure earthly benefits. If you pleased the gods, if you worshiped the gods, if you sacrificed to the gods, they would give you stuff. If you did not please or worship the gods, they could take things away or hurt you. So in principle, this system could make some sense. You have a god of the harvest, you pray for a, a good harvest, you pray to that god and then that god gives you a good harvest. You are going to military um, conflict and so you pray to the god of military victory and hope that that god gives you military victory. Same thing with children or corn or whatever else. And so in principle, this could be a coherent system. But what Augustine says is that if you study the system a little bit more closely and dig beneath the surface, things start to break down. You have three gods for corn. One for you know, the seeds, one for the shoots, one for reaping and harvesting. Why do you need three gods for corn? Is literally each god so weak that it can't handle the entire growth of a harvest of corn? There's a god for fortune. Okay, but fortune means by definition that it's arbitrary. Like you get a good thing, not on the basis of whether you're good or bad or whatever you do, but just because you're lucky. So why would you worship a god where the very definition of the god is that you might not get what you want, it depends on whether or not you're lucky. There's a god for felicity, which is another word for happiness. And according to the classical definition of happiness, happiness is that which you pursue for its own sake as its final end, and for the sake of which you pursue other things. But if you have a god for happiness, why would you need any other god? Because anything else that you would need in order to be happy, Felicity should be able to secure for you. You don't need a god for war or children or harvest if you have a god for happiness, because if those things would make you happy, happiness should be able to take care of it. So what Augustine says is that religion, Roman religion is not some conceptually coherent system. It's just something that you made up to get stuff. You're concerned about making sure you have earthly security, earthly goods, earthly riches. So you just made up a bunch of gods as a desperate, out of this desperate uh, effort to feel comfortable in this life, to have everything that you want um, that you're worried about materially. The second system, the second thing that he says about Roman religion is that it's a very destructive system, but it doesn't really rely on specially malicious people. It can arise from a fairly pedestrian combination of pragmatism and indifference. You don't need a lot of really horrible people to make Roman religion happen. You just need a lot of people who don't care and are willing to go along with the system. So there's different parties who are involved with Roman religion. Augustine ultimately attributes Roman religion to demons, who he thinks seek to destroy humanity um, and are uh, you know, jealous of humans, and so they want humans to worship them as if they were gods. But he says that demons can only prompt people toward false religion. Um, he, this isn't about demon possession or exorcism or things like that. It's just demons can play to our worst impulses so that we do the things that we want to do. Then amongst humans, you have two different parties. You have elites. These are um, people who know, know full well that the gods don't exist, but they have a vested interest in keeping up the fiction because it secures their political power. If they were to speak openly against the gods, that would cause political and civil instability they might lose their own position um, for challenging popular superstition. And so they don't really care about the gods per se, but they'll sort of keep this story going to preserve the system because it secures their stability and power. Then you've got everybody else. You've got the masses who actually do believe in the gods, but they are still guilty for believing in the gods because the main reason they do so is because of their greed, because of their lust for earthly, earthly things. They, you know, they're being manipulated, yes, by the elites, 
they're manipul being manipulated, yes, by demons. They didn't come up with these stories. They're not perpetuating it. But the main reason that they want to believe this stuff is because they themselves are obsessed with earthly things and don't value eternal things in relation to earthly things. So both the elite and the masses are in a lot of ways acting for understandable reasons. Secure your political stability, get the kinds of things that you want, you know, high mortality rates of childbirth, worship a god to make sure that you get you know, a healthy baby at birth. Right, these are all just normal things that everybody would care about, and that is how Roman religion suddenly arises and becomes this very deeply embedded demonic system in all of Roman society. The last thing that Augustine says is that the same impulse that gives rise to idolatry also gives rise to violence and oppression. So Rome's whole history is basically defined by its military activities. It's a story of how it was a small little city that was good at defending um, its, its borders against outside attack, but then got really good at war and then decided to start taking over more and more people groups until it went from city to empire. Its whole story is these its whole history, these stories of Roman heroes and their valor in battle and so forth. And Augustine says, this is sort of a problem. Because how does the story go? First of all, you're attacking all these other people and taking them over. You're not just defending yourself, you're aggressively going on the attack. And then actually, you eventually became this empire that takes over the whole world. Your last enemy was Carthage, which you defeated in the Punic Wars. And immediately after you defeated Carthage, you basically got bored and you started turning inward. And so whereas when you're fighting external enemies, all the Romans were united against you know, the Carthaginians, but once there was no external enemy, you suddenly have all these civil wars between the rich and the poor, the peasants, the serfs, all these other you know, internal communities that are even worse than any kind of international foreign battle that you ever fought. The Romans treat other Romans worse than anybody else outside the Romans treated them. And so what you see is that Rome is deeply violent, and where does this violence come from? It comes from their lust for earthly goods, right? The reason for idolatry is to get a bunch of stuff. The reason for war is to get other people's stuff. You worship false religion because you want earthly stuff. You go to war so frequently against others and yourself because you want earthly stuff. And so there's a root spiritual problem here, which is your lust for earthly goods, your obsession with stability, security, safety, luxury, leads to false religion and violence, as well as a bunch of other stuff that we don't have time to cover. Um, but Augustine treats over the course of a thousand pages. How does this illuminate mass incarceration? Well, what I would like to suggest is that mass incarceration might also be a system that doesn't require a bunch of really horrible individuals to perpetuate it, but can actually arise from a sort of collective series of understandable decisions characterized by pragmatism and indifference. You know, sort of do what's in your own interest and don't really care about other people. And if everybody does that, you can get something that destroys a whole community. In um, a book called The Collapse of American Criminal Justice, um, Harvard Law Professor, and actually, um, he's now deceased. He died at a very young age of cancer, but he was an evangelical. Um, a, a scholar named William Stuntz traces the collapse of American criminal justice to social fragmentation. He thinks that the reason why criminal justice is so racist and messed up is because our communities are so divided. So when you think about the justice system, what you're thinking about is police, judges, juries, prosecutors, defense attorneys. And they are largely, from an American historical perspective, the function of two major migrations. One was in the late 1800s, and the other was in the early 1900s. 
The late 1800s is Europeans. Okay, that's when you have the Polish, the Irish, the Russians coming over to America, you know, fleeing a potato famine, coming to the northern cities and struggling to integrate into larger American society. From about the 1900s to the 1960s, you have a sort of internal domestic migration from the south to the north of African Americans who are fleeing Jim Crow. Now, this is the age of lynchings, the KKK. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, harsh economic race uh, system in the South. There's urban industrial jobs in the North that are partly animated by the world wars and so forth. So you see a massive migration of seven million African Americans from Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, all the way up to the North. And Chicago, of course, is one of the major cities where African Americans um, come. In both of these cases, you see a rise of, uh, of violent crime because you have a bunch of displaced men, right? Displaced Irish men are going to commit crime. Displaced black men are going to commit crime. So this is sort of an expectable sociological phenomenon. But the difference is that when the Irish started committing all this crime in Chicago, they created an Irish justice system that was populated by Irish judges, Irish prosecutors, Irish police officers, Irish defense attorneys, who on the one hand were not going to tolerate Irish crime, but on the other hand, did not presume that if you're Irish, you must be congenitally violent, right? There's a kind of native sympathy and understanding to your own community so that you can make discretionary decisions about mercy and justice that make sense for the community internally, right? So it's not to say that no Irish person ever got you know, locked up for committing a violent crime, but the person locking them up was actually Irish, okay? And same thing with the Italians and the Russians and so forth. There were also a series of efforts by government, religious, and social agencies that were intended to, that, that perceived violent crime in European immigrant communities as a function of criminogenic circumstances. To say, well, they're living in poor neighborhoods. These are the challenges of immigration. You know, the men don't have jobs. So how can we provide social services so that the, the social environment would be less prone to generating violent crime? Crime was seen as a problem that could be solved and that was largely a function of external factors and not something inherently baked into the entire you know, community of all Irish people. When African Americans moved north and crime went up, the reaction was very, very different because of white flight. And you know, many of you are familiar with this community um, and its history, but Lawndale was once, uh, first of all, Lawndale illustrates these dynamics more clearly than just about any other neighborhood in the country. There's been so many sociological studies just of this you know, three-mile um, demographic um, to trace out these dynamics of white flight. Lawndale, as many of you are familiar, was once the biggest Jewish neighborhood in Chicago, primarily Eastern European and Russian Jews. You know, Benny Goodman lived here. Golda Meir, the fourth pr prime minister of the modern state of Israel, lived here. But when African Americans moved in, the Jewish community moved right out, and the neighborhood went from 90% white to 90% black in the space of 15 years in the 1950s and the 60s. And the most obvious example of, 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 of this change is just when you see a black Baptist church you know, on Independence Avenue that has Hebrew written into the wall. Like, why is that written in Hebrew? Why is Mount Sinai Hospital called Mount Sinai Hospital? Because it's Jewish. It's a formerly Jewish hospital, right? So it's really interesting. It's the architecture testifies to the history here. Well, the reason this um, shift had such a significant effect on incarceration is that when um, whites moved out, they retained control over the criminal justice system, and they did so as outsiders policing this community. 
It wasn't sort of insiders internally exercising discipline. It was an outside control of this community by people who are not naturally sympathetic or understanding of people of a different race. So this meant that um, unlike in white immigrant communities, black criminals had to face not black judges or black prosecutors or black police officers. They had to face white judges, white prosecutors, white officers, who in many cases treated blacks very disparately than they treated whites. And that's a pretty, like, pretty widely known statistical phenomenon. Unlike in white immigrant communities, black crime was not seen as a function of criminogenic circumstances, like poverty or you know, unemployment or something like this. It was seen as something that was baked into blackness. Blacks are inherently violent, that's why they commit crime. And so you just don't see the same kind of efforts from government you know, um, initiatives or social or religious initiatives to address the root causes of, of violent crime as what you saw with the Italians or the Polish or the Russians back in the late 1800s. If Stuntz is right, and, and so essentially what Stuntz says is that when you have this dynamic of you're not policing and you know, exercising justice over your own, it's an outside community policing a different community according to a very fundamental racial hierarchy that includes a lot of stereotypes about an inherent black disposition toward violent crime, that's one of the major factors that causes mass incarceration to spike. Because this all happened starting in the 70s and the 80s and so forth. Well, so then it becomes really important to understand what are the reasons for white flight? And the reasons here are actually pretty complicated. They're a lot more complicated than you might initially think. It's not just sort of an obvious story of whites are racist, don't want to live in black neighborhoods, and therefore they ditch out. Certainly racism is a function here, but there's a lot of systemic issues, and there's a lot of the same kinds of dynamics that we talked about before with regard to this pragmatic indifference. So this begins after the Great Depression, when you have a lot of foreclosures, and the Federal Housing Administration is initiated to provide, um, to incentivize home ownership. So they make mortgages a lot more affordable, you can pay it off at a much um, slower period of a much longer period of time, you only have to put 10% down instead of 50% down, that all starts in like 1934-ish. The problem is that all these incentives that were going to white um, potential homeowners to purchase new homes in the suburbs were entirely denied for black communities. And the FHA um, instituted a notoriously racist policy called redlining that meant that if there was even a small black population in a given neighborhood, and Chicago was the leader in doing this, then they would provide no mortgage insurance um, for those neighborhoods, whether to whites or blacks, which effectively excluded blacks from the housing market and meant that if a single black family moved into a neighborhood, say like Lawndale, housing property values would completely plummet. Like if one black family moved into this 100% Jewish neighborhood, property values would be appraised at zero. Like your house, house would be worth zero and you wouldn't be able to sell, right? Well, this federal policy, which went on until 1968, after MLK was assassinated, there was such an outcry that um, you had the institution of the Fair Housing Act and that's when, it, that's when this ends. And by the way, this story is the reason why blacks have so much less wealth because so many people have made their wealth through housing, right? That's one of the major investments that allows you to produce wealth. And um, there's huge disparities of wealth, even more than income between white and blacks because of this history. Redlining basically creates a space for exploitative real estate practices. So you have community, you have these people called blockbusters and contract sellers who exploit the situation by selling homes to blacks on an alternate housing market at 
very jacked up rates, um, very jacked up prices for very unjust terms. So what they would do is they would contact white homeowners, they would warn them black, that blacks were gonna move into the neighborhood and they would pressure them into selling their houses on the cheap. Then when white homeowners did sell the house, often below the value at which they, they purchased it, um, these contract sellers or blockbusters are the same people they would flip the houses and sell them to African-Americans on contract. That's why they're called contract sellers, which means that the, the, the African-American homeowners could not receive a title to the home until after they completed all the mortgage payments. So just think about, you don't get the title to your home until after 30 years of mortgage payments, as opposed to you get it up front, and then you, that's your house, and now you can invest in it. In this case, you're putting all this money into a house that you don't even own, and if you miss one mortgage payment, you might not, you might get kicked out. And that's something that happened frequently. On average, these homes sold at a price that was 73% higher than what they were purchased for. 73%. And so you have essentially, you know, you buy a white homeowner's home and you flip it like the next day at a 73% profit. Frequently, these houses were sold for three or four times the um, original buying price. So these people were making a killing. So you have the FHA, you have Blockbuster, um, you have contract sellers. These are all major players and they are pretty malicious. But the vast majority of people were not like that. They were just normal homeowners who didn't really want to move. Moving's a hassle. You have to you know, purchase a new place, find a new place, find a new school for your kids, pack up all your stuff. You have to commute from the suburbs to the city which by the way, the rise of suburbs correlates right, with the invention of cars, right? So cars make it possible to even have this life where you live in the suburbs and come to the city. On the other hand, if they stayed in the neighborhoods, it was actually quite true that they were gonna lose all their property value. They were gonna lose their nest egg, their investment, you know, all this money that they had saved up because the blockbusters were sort of telling the truth. If blacks moved into the neighborhood, property values would go straight down because of FHA policies. That's how it worked. On the other hand, there's a lot of federal government assistance for whites who wanted to purchase home in the suburbs. So most people basically just took the easiest, most painless option and they left. But when everybody did the same thing, you have the almost instantaneous demographic transformation of communities like our own, which go from, I mean, can you imagine how quickly that is for 15 years, how big of a deal it is to move. Like moving is such a, I hate moving. I moved probably like 12 times in my 20s. <laughs> and, you know, during my single years, you're just always in a new apartment, new room. I hate moving. But to move a whole family and for 90% of a community to do that in such a short period of time, it's not just racism, it's racist policies. And a bunch of people would basically say, okay, well, it's not my problem, I'm just gonna move. Now, I'm not saying that every person who moved was callous or insensitive to what was happening. During Jeanette and my time in this community, we've heard so many stories of actually people who tried to stay in these neighborhoods before, uh, as they were flipping, but the racial tensions in the 60s were so thick that it was almost impossible. And you know, white kids were getting beaten up at school just for being white. I mean, it just was impossible. On the other hand, there were very few communities who even tried to resist what was going on. And unfortunately, the Christian communities were frequently um, facilitating this process. They were accelerating this process. Catholics by, you know, firebombing um, blacks who were moving into the neighborhood to, you know, keep their neighborhoods white and Catholic. Protestants who were making immediate plans as soon as blacks moved in to move their churches out. There's a lot of literature on this stuff. And Christians were not involved, really, in the resistance movement, you know, mainline Catholic or evangelical. 
And so the question for me is, um, how does this shape the way that we think about this community today? How does this shape the way that we think about mass incarceration now? If mass incarceration can be attributed in large measure to social fragmentation, and social fragmentation can be attributed to decisions that I totally could have made in the 1960s if I were in that situation, well, what does that say about kinds of decisions that we make now? And what does it say about how we as Christians respond to these kinds of structural injustices, these kinds of systemic issues? So let me just briefly name a few, um, a few Christian considerations, I think, in response to this, this broader phenomenon. The first is the importance of proximity, which is something that probably a lot uh, of you in this room care about. If mass incarceration reveals the effects of racial and socioeconomic division, I think healing um, may well begin by knitting communities back together across race and class lines. It was only by living in this community that my wife and I were able to see the personal effects of mass incarceration. So it wasn't just a series of statistics, but it's actual human beings and families and the person who lives you know, next door to you or across the street. It was only by listening to people's stories that we realized that not all whites who left were racist, that a lot of them wanted to stay, but their kids were getting beat up, and so they had no choice, and the kids are still traumatized years later. That this was just, it was almost like a demonic period, 1960s race relations in Chicago. It's just crazy to imagine what it would have been like. Well, if mass incarceration is a kind of structural evil that can arise from decisions as apparently mundane as home ownership, then I think that we should attend very carefully to those kinds of decisions. Often when we think about Christian faithfulness, we think about personal piety. Reading your Bible, praying, going to church, you know, not lusting, not lying, not gossiping, things like that. I think we need a broader understanding of Christian discipleship that extends to the basic structures by which we order our lives. Where we live, where we send our kids to school, how we spend our money, what kinds of people we welcome into our neighborhoods. I'm not suggesting that you know, living in the suburbs is a sin or that everybody is called to live in a community like Lawndale, but I do think that we should aim more when we're thinking about these big picture decisions than just aiming for the biggest house in the safest neighborhood with the best schools. If the communities where we live and work and worship are entirely homogenous in terms of race and class, that's a signal that we're giving in to social lines of division that characterize the world. And the church is supposed to be an alternate to the world where those things are overcome. And it's, it, it could be a warning to us that we may be unintentionally participating in structural evils that have macro level consequences that we're not aware of because we're isolated from these things. The second is the importance of balancing justice and mercy. Um, a lot of Christians divide between personal relationships and the state. So there's sort of civic society and then there's the relationships that I have with my friends. And they think that mercy and forgiveness and turning the other cheek is what I do to my friend who hurts me. And harsh justice is what we do in the state to people who commit criminal offenses. This is not a standard Christian position. It is one Christian position. It's actually not Augustine's. He explicitly writes against us. And he argues that criminal justice itself should be leavened by mercy. That when you're too harsh, actually, it has a negative effect because people don't trust you as much because they don't believe that they're being treated fairly. They start to question your legitimacy as an authority. That you can actually strengthen civil peace by sometimes treating people more humanly and recognizing mitigating circumstances. And don't forget, by the way, that God is the ultimate judge and let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So yes, after death, God is the ultimate one to judge the world. 
He is the one who knows all things and can assess all circumstances. But on earth, our job is not to judge. It is simply to show mercy. It is to balance mercy with justice. It's to restore people, to heal people, to act as a doctor as a doctor and not as an executioner. That's actually in Augustine's language. I didn't just say that because they're all a bunch of health people. Um, <laughs> Jesus as a great physician is one of Augustine's favorite examples. Um, and he talks about how Jesus was, in fact, the one who came to heal not the healthy, but the sick and to bring them to salvation. And he thinks this should actually shape the way that we do criminal justice. The third major implication that I would suggest is to um, attend more to the beauty and the dynamics of redemption. Christianity is a faith of extraordinary irony. The first will be last, the last will be first. Glory comes through humility, strength comes through weakness. The creator of the universe became part of the created order. And I think the restoration of offenders operates in much the same way, so that it is frequently those who have made the worst mistakes but have re-entered society um, who are often the most brilliant witnesses to God's transforming power. This is a very, very complicated issue as I've realized over the years, because the crime in this community um, both involves perpetrators and victims. So we don't want to downplay the significant effects of violent crime on this community, or in many cases, the women who have had to suffer the effects of incarceration, sort of holding up the families, and um, yeah, often being the ones who, who are enduring the burden of violent crime committed by men in this community. On the other hand, we have a faith that teaches forgiveness and redemption, and those things involve the messiness of redemption and reconciliation um, between those who have committed sins against others and those who have been the victims of other people's sins. And one of the things that Jeanette and I love so much about the Hope House and this broader community is that when you look at you know, ex-offenders, when you look at men who have come through Hope House, what we love about them is that they so visibly display the dynamics of sin and grace and redemption that all of us actually experience in our day-to-day -day lives, even if we've never gone to prison or committed crimes or whatever else. We all have made mistakes, maybe not criminal mistakes, but we all make lots of mistakes and hurt other people. We all struggle to get back on our feet. We all recidivate. It's not like you learn your sin and then you fix it. Like, how many times do we go through repeated cycles of sin, yet we all believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us to work through our brokenness so that we can change. And I would think that Christians should have a very special interest in the dynamics of sin and grace and redemption. And I think that incarceration and how we respond to those who have made the most visible mistakes in society and have essentially been deemed unfit for society, how they can experience those dynamics of grace and sin and redemption as well. We of all people, I think as Christians, should be the most interested in that. And mass incarceration is in many ways the most visible instance of that in our society. So. I would suggest that this is something that Christians have a special interest in, um, both as we reflect on the dynamics of structural evil and as we think about how Jesus Christ changes the way that we think about criminal justice and legal issues like this. Um, 10 minutes, I guess, for questions. Yeah. Neil, thanks. That was very good. Uh, your favorite too. I, can you speak more to uh, pragmatic indifference? And I'm curious if like, can a, a rent uh, mentality of yeah, it probably does. Um, yeah, I think a lot about that issue, though her um, her book has come under attack in recent years. Um, that's kind of a special stuff. Um, yeah, uh, so the idea is that, so Hannah Arendt um, was a Jewish philosopher who covered the trial of this um, Nazi named Adolf Eichmann, and she 
was struck by the banality of his evil. So he was responsible for coordinating the trains and so forth while Jews were getting um, transported to concentration camps, but he just seemed like a totally normal person, right? And his excuse was, if I didn't do this, that itself would have been illegal. The country was flipped upside down, and so all I was doing was obeying orders. If I hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. You know, I could have been put in prison if I you know, disobeyed Hitler or whatever. So what would you expect me to do in that kind of situation? I was just being a cog in the wheel of this larger system, so don't hold me responsible for the whole Holocaust. And I think that's a really tough question to think about. Like, what if you know, you're unintentionally that person who's contributing this to this major systemic evil um, simply because you're following orders and not thinking about things that hard? And I think that's the complexity of individual responsibility and collective dynamics. That there's a way in which individual decisions and the ways that different agencies operate with one another, whether it be um, like, yeah, community members versus politicians versus law enforcement, the way that each of them have their own interests and they operate according to those interests without really thinking about the system as a whole, like what they might, what, might, what they might be doing individually could be understandable, but it contributes to something that has really destructive effects. And so I think that resisting those kinds of systemic evils therefore can't just be an individual thing. That's, I think, why you need the collective community of the church. Right? You can't just have one white homeowner say, well, I'm not going to move and I'm going to lose all of my property value, all of the investment into this home. You actually need a corporate witness of the church and other activists and so forth who are calling attention to these things Otherwise, one person is get, just going to get gobbled up by the whole system. And that's actually what you do not really see in the 1950s and 60s. You just don't see a ton of churches saying, no, as Christians, we're not going to do this. Actually, you see the opposite. You see churches you know, closing their doors so that African-Americans can't come in. An African-American visits their church. They interview them after service to make sure they're not going to come back again. They start an elders meeting to you know, plan a property you know, uh, uh, to, to purchase property out in the suburbs so they can get away from this community. While they're also doing missions in communities that are black that they're moving away from. So they start missions in black communities that they're moving away from so that they don't have to live around black people. So the church actually did the opposite of what it was supposed to do in many cases. Um, yeah, which I think um, is why it's important to move beyond just individualistic thinking about Christianity and thinking about corporate evils and corporate responses. Yeah. What was it like being an outsider as a Wheaton family living in Long Hill, especially in the light of Ferguson and all the subsequent police brutality shootings and being around a community that I didn't see? Do you think that was very monumental? Um, you know, I sometimes think that being Asian American is like the easiest thing to be in this community <laughs> because we um, don't get harassed by the police. You know, we'll enjoy a lot of benefits that a lot of local community members don't experience. Um, on the other hand, we don't carry all the baggage of, you know, racial hostility between whites and blacks. Um, it, it's a little different, I think, in Chicago than LA, where you had the LA riots in 1992 and, all, and things like that. So, um, you know, Jeanette and I feel actually very thankful for the gift of our Asian American identity as something that we've been able to, um, that's helped us to, I think, function pretty well in this community because we've always been minorities anyway. So if I were living and going to church in Wheaton, you know, I'd be in all white churches out there. And so it's not that different to be in an all black church in a certain sense because you're always sort of translating um, across cultural lines anyway. 
I think that as minorities, we are, um, as minorities who are not African American, we know what it's like to be a minority. Um, but that doesn't mean that we know what it's like to be African American, right? So I think what that allows us to do at least is to have a sensitivity to what we don't know and what we can't understand and the depth of um, experiential and perspective, perspectival difference that comes through differing race experiences. So um, yeah, I would say that we as Asian Americans have felt very welcomed by this community and I feel like we've been sheltered from I think a lot of the challenges that both blacks and whites in this community sometimes experience. And yeah, I don't think any of that was different, you know, in response to Ferguson or anything like that. Right. Um, so there's a recent study actually of Chicago that shows that um, how race-based gentrification is. And I might be botching these numbers, but the study was done on, uh, of Chicago. It was by um, a sociologist at Harvard who formerly taught at UChicago. And um, what they found is that basically a neighborhood will not gentrify unless there's at least 35% whites in the community and lower than 40% black. So if a neighborhood is higher than 40% black, it's not gonna flip. And if it's lower than 35% white, it's also not gonna flip, or at least not until you have sort of a transitional shift, something along those lines. And so, yeah, Lawndale is, it's like 90% African-American. What we're seeing is sort of the rise of a Latino population here, just sort of anecdotally. Um, so it doesn't seem statistically likely to flip that quickly um, based on this study. And so, um, I mean, the way that we tend to think about gentrification is that statistically it's not that likely to operate in such a way that you have all these, you know, wealthier whites, move, you know, pushing out lower income blacks. Um, at the same time, gentrification involves massive systems, you know, that I don't think any one community or set of ministries can really, you know, I think it would be, it's difficult to overcome. And so what you can do, I think, is to create a network where you sort of ensure that the right gentrification happens, where you're sort of enhancing what happens for everybody in the community, as opposed to the kind of gentrification where, you know, wealthier people come in, the people who already live here can't afford the property taxes or the rent or whatever, and they're pushed out. And so we tend to think that the kind of community that the Lawndale Ministries is trying to knit together, um, that crosses race and class lines is sort of the best thing you can do to resist these really macro pressures that um, that are you know beyond anybody's control. That's how I think about it. I'm not an expert, so yeah. One of the things that uh, we're seeing a lot of is that kind of the reverse, where um, lower income African Americans are actually being kind of moved out into the suburbs. Where you know for a long time nobody could get Section Eight vouchers. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, everybody's getting the Section 8 vouchers, but they're being told you have to move to a different state for a year, and then when you go, you can, if after a year, you can move back and uh -huh. get your voucher wherever you want uh, in the city. The problem is, when they're trying to come back, uh, there is nowhere really they can't, to get yeah. the vouchers, and so they end up, you know, in the town or out in the suburbs or something like that, where Transportation is an issue, mm -hmm. you know, so they can't really get to work, can't get back to the city, and some of the services, um, like uh, metro trains, those kinds of things, go 
it's a situation where um, the churches in the suburbs have to be proactive about responding to this, right? Because the easiest response is, um, you know, if you see a demographic of lower income folks coming in, um, you're gonna have all sorts of explosions about school boards, you know, about schools and, and zoning and things like that. And um, I think that it should be the church before anybody else who starts to actively reach out to communities that are moving into these areas. Um, one of um, my former professors at, at Trinity, his name is Peter Cha, um, he's actually um, very involved with this kind of thing because there's these communities like North Chicago and Waukegan where you're seeing a real demographic change. And so he's received a major grant to work with local churches in that area to think about how to embrace, you know, communities that are, that new communities that are coming into the, um, into the area. And so there are some examples of people being proactive about that. Um, but yeah, I think that the church has to be nimble and respond to the changing circumstances. And what we are experiencing right now isn't the same thing as the 50s and 60s, right? So it's exactly what you're saying. So how do we avoid repeating the same kinds of mistakes? Um, how do you, I think that's why it's important to know this history and to think about Christian responses to this stuff in the 60s because you don't want to do the same thing over again.